3: You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In national news today, North Carolina is voting on a constitutional amendment that would effectively ban same-sex marriage or civil unions, according to the BBC. The issue is raising turnout on an otherwise uncontested primary day. Recent polls suggest the amendment will pass, defining marriage as only between a man and a woman. North Carolina law already bans gay marriage. Also in national news today, Maurice Sendak, the author of the best-selling children's book Where the Wild Things Are, has died at age 83. His longtime editor told the New York Times the author died in Danbury, Connecticut after complications from a recent stroke. In Michigan news today, people with concealed pistol permits in Michigan will now be able to carry tasers. Governor Rick Snyder signed the bill into law today, according to Michigan Radio. The rules will be the same as those that apply to people authorized to carry firearms in Michigan. On Impact Exposure today, we will be talking about a special uh, public public art grant that will start here on Michigan Avenue this summer. Um, also in the show, we'll be talking about issues going on in the UP, including a group that wants to separate the UP from the Lower Peninsula, creating its own state. Uh, we'll also be talking about sulfide mining in the UP that has caused some issues um, among many up there. Uh, but first... I've spent the past five years working here at the Impact, 89 FM, and it has been the opportunity that I've that has truly changed my life. It's been great to work with young people filled with energy who want to keep radio relevant. Up next is a special feature by Impact's music director, Jesse Weiza, about college radio in the digital age.
0: Good
4: morning, America. You're listening to KWVA Eugene. It was good, while
1: well,
3: it lasted. Oh, this is Easy Money. You're listening to CJLO. DJ B
1: Nasty right here on KTUH 90.3 FM, Honolulu, Hawaii's the only university college-run radio.
3: You're listening to KVRX Austin,
5: Texas. Welcome to the world of college radio. Here, there are no commercials. Instead, there are very pregnant pauses.
0: You're listening to WUPX. I'm Tim, and that last song, uh, well, uh, my computer's frozen.
5: There are also mispronunciations.
0: And coming up next, this is going to be one by Sufjan
5: Stevens. But there is also Discovery. I fell in love. For years, College Radio was the source for people to discover music that hadn't made it yet. It was the place for local bands and experimental groups to get their footing before debuting on Billboard or in Rolling Stone. This was before the internet, though. The internet has changed the music industry in many ways. With the introduction of file sharing services like Napster in 1999, consumers began sharing MP3s with each other and cut out the middleman, as well as a large portion of the profit margin that the music industry was used to. It wasn't all doom and gloom, though. The internet also opened the floodgates for new ways to discover music. College radio was no longer the main contender. The internet brought music fans webzines like Pitchfork, which brings reviews, interviews, video content, as well as the ability to stream albums before they come out. YouTube has also been a goldmine for artists to be discovered, like OK Go's 2005 hit, Here It Goes, here it goes Again. And lastly is college radio's biggest contender, music streaming services like Spotify and Last.fm. Last.fm looks at your iTunes and sees what you've already listened to and makes recommendations on what else you might enjoy a very personalized listening experience. Is there any room left in this landscape for college radio? What are college stations doing to stay relevant? Our first guest is Thor Slaughter. Thor is the music director at University of Oregon's student station, KWVA. Thor's start in college radio was not unlike many other DJs.
4: I had a crush on a girl who was a DJ, and I thought I could be a better DJ than she was.
5: After a short time, it became less about the girl and more about what draws everyone to college radio.
4: I just really loved the whole aesthetic, the whole feel of it. I like the idea that there's these freaks in this very cramped room. It's lots of dust everywhere, and, and everyone was almost about to quit. No one was really... It's this very chaotic situation, and I just loved it. It was just so... It's just so rock and roll, just a bunch of young kids sort of flying in and out trying to put a radio show on. Pretty, it's pretty inspiring.
5: KWVA runs like most college stations in the U.S., with students deciding what the station's content is with little to no involvement from administrators, professors, or commercial interests. As a music director at a station, Thor sorts through hundreds of music submissions each month and picks out what he finds most relevant and interesting for his listeners. Though the Internet offers many sources to discover music, Thor believes college radio still has value to offer.
4: We're weird. We're freaks. We obsess over music, so you don't have to. College radio has personality. Private room. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I wanna get. A private
4: room. Your internet radio does not have personality. There's no one on Pandora talking to you, and if they are, they want you to buy a Prius. That's you know that's an dichotomy there, and and we're gonna be better than you know uh, a related artist link. You know, like, that's that's what you get, you know, when you're on the internet. You get a related artist link.
5: That related artist link might not seem that valuable to Thor now, but Brian Van Gelder, associate content producer for CBS Interactive Music Group, the company behind the website Last.fm, agrees that right now it might not be important, but that's not always going to be the case.
6: For someone to utilize Last.fm for, say, bragging rights, I don't know, maybe not yet, but the goal is that, yeah, it will become as valuable, if not more valuable, than,
5: say, you know, a billboard placement. On the other end of the music industry spectrum is
7: Aaron Ginty. I run the college and specialty department at EMI Music, which includes Capitol Records, Virgin Records, Astroworks Records, and Blue Note Records.
5: Aaron agrees with Thor and believes that right now college radio is still the place that musicians can break first. You know,
7: I do think college radio is an extremely relevant medium to discover new music because, um... I think college is so special and unique in that they'll put something on that they've never heard of before, and they really help to be um, an important part of an artist's development and success. So I think there's a lot of artists today that are very, very successful because of the great base and foundation that started with college radio airplay.
5: One recent example of this is the artist Gautier, who after being warmly received by college radio was picked up by commercial stations and went number 1 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, the first Australian to do so since Savage Garden in 2000.
7: Now you're just I, used to know. I think compared to other types of radio out there, the other commercial formats, it's the only one that really plays new music. I think the other ones don't play a song until it's proven to be a quote-unquote hit, until you know it has so many millions of YouTube views and so many millions of sales, and then they'll play it once they know that their audience is aware of it.
5: KWVA embodies that open-mindedness to a T. Yeah, I want us to be this home for
4: freaks, <laughs> you know. Like I wanted to, I want to be able to tune in and hear weird bands, hear some crazy person that have spent way too much time listening to good music than I ever will have the time to because I have a real life and a job or whatever.
8: People
7: that listen to these stations are music heads and, you know, we'll be the people that will tell their friends about this new artist. That's where, you know, for this really great talented artist or any new, you know, talented artist, that's really where you want to start.
5: In addition to major labels still putting value in breaking ground at the college radio market, these student-run radio stations also provide local music scene content that no national blogs have been able to replace. Brian Van Gelder from CBS Interactive Music Group used to work at a college station himself and explains why his former station
6: is here to stay. We always will exist because we were always utilized. Um, They saw us as um, a community tool, so you know, we could deliver pertinent information as well as rock out in the evening.
5: EMI's Aaron Ginty sees the relationships within a station's broadcasting range as one of its most important functions.
7: You know, what's really special about radio and local radio is just being in the community, and I think having that connection with your local venues and local um, record stores, I think that's something that's really important because that's something that a blog really can't do because a blog is national, and I don't think they they know the community. You know, I don't think Pitchfork would do something with the local venue. So I think that's important. I think, you know, having that is, is something that can kind of keep your audience and listeners really well connected and engaged.
5: Many college stations are also experimenting with new formats to release content in more interactive ways. KWVA's Thor Slaughter is trying to push his station to dig deeper into their options. I want
4: KWVA to have this litany of great things out there that it's done, that it's been a part of, right? So whether that's doing sessions Putting them online, whether it's making original content, whether that's publishing mixtapes, you know, and getting people a chance to hear things that, you know, they wouldn't necessarily hear. And that's what it's about it's about making content. I really believe in creating content. In college radio, because we have the resources that other people don't have.
5: CBS Interactive Music Group's Brian Van Gelder says the idea of interactive original content is something all forms of media are trying to figure out right now.
6: I mean, we're all in the experimentation phase from the highest corporate level right down to the college stations and the pirate guys, too. Um, Everyone's trying to figure out what's going to be the next step. And there's no clear, I mean, to me at least, there's no clear winner right now. Yeah, we blog. Yeah, we tweet. Um, yeah, we stream, yeah, we YouTube, but nothing has really come forth as the the prominent next step.
5: EMI's Aaron Ginty has noticed many college stations utilizing their resources to boost themselves up online.
7: A lot of college radio stations have started to do um, many more interactive things, like starting a blog or um, these video interviews that not only have questions, but they also show the band performing, and they become a great tool for the band to also use on their Twitter and Facebook. So... I think called has really stepped up in that they not only broadcast new music, but they have started using the Internet to kind of help broaden their station's reach as well.
5: This feature was written and produced by Jesse Wiza. Special thanks to Aaron Ginty, Thor Slaughter, and Brian Van Gelder. Music was provided by Mark Mothersbaugh, Sufjan Stevens, OK Go, Hunks, and Gautier.
1: You're listening to
2: Impact Explosion. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Time, where you can find a different specialty show
7: every night of the week.
1: Monday nights from 8 till 10, The Asian Invasion brings you the music from The Rising Sun. We'll bring you the latest pop, indie, rock, and electro from Korea, Japan,
0: and China. Only on Impact 89FM.
4: An ordinary day, an ordinary family's living room filled with an ordinary bunch of kids, and they were doing nothing, when suddenly...
0: That's a personal foul in active activity on a sunny day.
4: Coming to the rescue was NFL running back Reggie Bush. Let's play. And play they did. There was running and jumping and laziness was crushed.
9: Hey kids, don't get a lazy penalty. Go online to smallstep.gov
4: for fun playtime ideas. So you can be a player too. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human
1: Services and the Ad
4: Council.
7: Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former our owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have a good day.
1: Small step number 81. Snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov.
7: A public service announcement brought to you by the US Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council.
1: Now, back to
3: impact exposure. tuned to Impact exposure i'm your host emily fox michigan avenue is going to be home to a new project called the ave which brings art and storytelling into the streets of lansing here to talk about the project is professor vincent delgado from the residential college of arts and humanities and on the phone is professor Je- jerry zeldas from the school of journalism thanks so much for joining us tonight thank you thank you emily so tell me about this project what is it going to look like
9: um, well, what it'll look like is um, people will move down the avenue. Uh, this would be any avenue uh, around Mid-Michigan. We're starting on Michigan Avenue, but uh, it'll move into onto Grand River Avenue, Washington Avenue avenues. And they'll see placards. They'll see something that'll catch their eye. And it'll just say the Ave. And there'll be a co, uh Quick resp- response code, which looks like those little funny-looking symbols that you can click your smartphone on. Oh, those
3: QR codes? QR codes, mm-hmm. that's
9: right. And Or there will be a phone number for those, of, uh, those that are like me and don't have a smartphone and have to dial old school on their cell phone. Um, so when you see that, uh, you can either click it or call it, and what will come is a story. And that story will be about that place in which you're standing – or a place very close to where you're standing. So you'll actually be standing and hearing a story um, about about the spot you're in. Um, so if you've ever heard the, the the expression, if those walls could talk, um, this allows the walls up and down avenues all over Lansing to talk.
3: In what kind of places will these QR codes be placed? Do you know for sure where they're going to be put yet?
9: Uh, we, we have a couple of locations. Um the way we're thinking about this is because stories have elements of surprise, mystery, discovery, those are what, what define really good stories. We want the project to have that as well. And so the idea is that mysteriously some maps are going to show up uh, in the next couple of months that will lead people to their locations up and down Michigan Avenue.
3: How did you come up with the idea for this project?
9: Uh it's it's a, it's an idea that came from another person's experience of uh, walking through a community and doing a lot of walking through a community and realizing that it doesn't matter how much you walk up and down streets you can't know a place until you hear its stories and a place is made up of its stories um, that's what the kind of the ultimate in placemaking is and uh, so this relates to kind of the notion of art as helping define people's public imagination about a place, which is something we talk a lot about at the Residential College in the Arts and Humanities. And I'll let Jerry talk a little bit about why she, what captured her imagination about the story, uh, about the project.
8: Well, we've been working on this, Vincent and I, and a few other people have been thinking about this for the last few years. And Mm -hmm. and I was able to Created a class a few years ago, calling uh, called uh, telling immigrant stories. So uh, we we really think these small one to two minute stories uh, that are memorable will um, both capture and document um, the people and places in, in the Av. And and what's really interesting is that in terms of of, of journalistic and story and narrative uh, telling, um, that they're able to uh, uh, Tell the history about a place and to show people, uh, showcase to, to folks who are visiting Lansing for, for the first time that Lansing is a really amazing place that is um, a, a fabric of crazy, um, crazy people and crazy places and one of a kind stories. It-
3: Jerry Zeldes, can you tell me a little bit more about that that uh, the Immigrant Stories Project? What did it look like, and how will it compare and contrast to the Av Project? Well,
8: both of them um, have the have a similar spirit. They both are, um, in essence, um, were created to attract people uh, to Lansing and to uh, create a place for immigrants and. And we're hoping that uh, the, both, of, both of these projects show that this is a place that's welcoming, that is um, a place that uh, many different people can come to and um, find a home. Um, but this particular project, the app isn't solely on immigrants. It's about everybody. It is about... Um, yes, it's about immigrants, but it's also about non-immigrants um, who have come and found a place in, in the Lansing corridor of sorts and call it home for whatever reason they do so.
3: I, I understand the project will identify eight stories. What Can you tell me what some of those stories are that you'll be telling?
8: Yeah, well, tomorrow we're actually, the, the team is going to vote and take a look at, ah. I believe there are 30 or so,
2: Stories, mm. but some of
8: the stories that my students have created, for for example, um, there is a story about a, a seamstress, um, and it's a story that was created by Emmanuel Berry, who who is is the news director of the Impact, mm-hmm. of the Full Disclosure, um, and she covers a woman um, who is making hundreds and hundreds of aprons because she believes it, believes it's her calling, and she believes that um, that Michelle Obama. And President Barack Obama would um, appreciate these aprons because the apron or the fig leaf that it's modeled after was the first um, garment of God. And then you have stories of heartbreak, um, you have stories that uh, a student named Sarah Ventimiglia created. She she um, had the fortune of, of being able to get a hold of a, a, a young man who was shot and killed at KFC. So, so these stories, I, I, I'm hoping that, that people don't think that this is solely a, a public relations project. This is, this is a project that is, um, you know, at its very core about real people and about real places. And is it, and it isn't just all about documenting the. The pretty side of Lansing, mm-hmm. but of of the many facets of Lansing, including you know it, it's it's uh it's more seedy side or or it, it's uh, the the side it, you know where where people have you know, people have been shot and killed in, in downtown Lansing. Mm-hmm.
9: Well, the story that – my favorite story uh, that we've collected so far is about two women actually from MSU, two students who are from Puerto Rico, and they miss the food and the spicy food of Puerto Rico and the vibrant culture. And so they decide to get on the one number one bus and cruise down to Lansing having no idea where they're going to go. And they see a bakery called Jerusalem Bakery, which is a bakery that has all sorts of really spicy, yummy foods from all around. And they discover these amazing sauces and spices. And I think one of them makes the comment at one point, it was so good, it tasted like Jesus. And it's just you can (laughs) see and taste and feel the flavors and that discovery. I love quirky stories. So I have a. I have a heart for that, so I really enjoyed. There's a lot of great stories.
3: So, are these mostly students that are that are finding these stories and putting them together? Are they are they audio or are they video as well?
9: They're all of it. Uh, there's 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 multiple. There's what we've essentially done is created a structure, uh, and this is the exciting thing about the university's involvement in it. Uh, there's multiple units on campus involved, including communications, the residential college um there's university outreach and engagement college of arts and letters and we've created a structure where faculty can create classes on different subjects and then have students go out and collect the stories Mm. and those stories can be just audio clips that you dial in you just hear audio uh they can be audio with some photo some photography or photographs or they can be full fledged audio visual clips um so it it allows for a lot of different type of media for people to connect with and for students to use to tell their stories. So,
3: This project is funded through the city of Lansing and their grant called a Sense of Place. How do you think that this the AV project will create a sense of place here in Lansing? Go ahead. I think, yeah,
8: <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it, it gives, certain, you know, these residents that, right? On Michigan Avenue that have, I mean, some of these people have been there, have, have been store owners for 30 some years or so in the case of, of, uh, the seamstress. It gives them a voice, it gets them excited, and it makes them feel like, you know, like Lansing is their place and they, they can claim it and, 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 uh, it, it allows everybody else who comes through their doors to know their narrative, their backstory, and why there are so many aprons that, that surround the storefront, perhaps.
9: Mm-hmm. St- places, to me, are not always just bricks and mortar. They're not just the weather. Um, they're actually the stories we tell each other, and they're the myths that we tell each other. And I think what this project does is actually tap into those myths tap into those stories, and literally put them on the street so that everyone can have access to them and hopefully contribute to, the, to this place uh, going forward.
3: You guys aren't going to have a kickoff party for this, for this project per se. Um, Vincent Vince Delgado and I were talking before the show and he said it's going to be a little mysterious how it's going to come about. People are just going to have to keep an eye out. So for people that want to keep an eye out on this project, where, where on Michigan Avenue can they look and when can they expect to start seeing these QR codes where they can scan their smartphone or, or call in a number and listen to these stories on their phone?
9: Well, right now we're we're meeting uh, to talk about the stories, to look at the website that's been created and the mobile the mobile technology that's been developed, and uh, so we're at that point right now. We're thinking that sometime in late May, early June, we'll be going ahead and testing it, and then at some point, uh, maps will be found up and down Michigan Avenue and other places around Mid Michigan that would uh, suggest that people go searching. So a scavenger hunt. Uh, sort of a scavenger <laughs> hunt. We're not exactly sure how this will play out, but uh, there'll be some kind of communication from the Av people.
3: <laughs> Very interesting. Well, in the studio is Vincent Delgado from the Residential College of Arts and Humanities, and on the phone was is Professor Jerry Zeldis from the School of Journalism, and they're in to talk about a project called The Av, which will bring art and storytelling to the streets of Lansing later on this summer. So, Professor Delgado and Zeldis, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank Thank you. Thanks so much,
9: Emily.
1: You're listening to
6: Impact Exposure. Exposure.
4: Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council.
2: For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
1: Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music.
2: Only on
1: Impact Primetime. Primetime. Now back to
2: Impact Exposure.
6: Exposure.
3: You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. People in the UP are feeling left out from the rest of the state, and some are even in talks to separate from the rest of the state completely. One of those people is Mike Quayle, who is the Marquette County Commissioner. He's on the phone to talk about the idea of secession. Welcome to the show, Mike Quayle. Thank you. So you were one of the first people to propose um, that the UP be separate from the Lower Peninsula uh, recently. What sparked this idea?
10: Well, I think it's the frustration of what's happening uh, in Lansing uh, with a couple of issues in particular. One is the taxation on non-ferrous mining, and the other is is the uh, state revenue sharing uh, issues. Um, currently, we have a, a mine here in Marquette County, uh, Kennecott Minerals, and they're uh, mining for copper and nickel. And uh, under the current uh, taxation, they would be taxed on an ad valorem uh, tax base, which is very similar to any homeowner in that uh, what they would pay. They're taxed, their property is evaluated and they pay taxes by a formula on that. Representative uh, Matt Cookie from the UP uh, has uh, introduced, he hasn't introduced, he's, he's provided three rough drafts. Of a severance tax, and that particular tax uh, in a, his particular draft uh, is very harmful to the local communities and to the school districts, and very beneficial to big business.
3: Um, so the, the- severance ta- tax would affect the whole state of Michigan.
10: Well, it would it would affect them only if it's non-ferrous mining. It is written this uh, bill as he's written it, and the governor's staff, a bill that they're working on, is written specifically towards this non-ferrous mining, which uh, in the last eight ten years in the UP there's been some uh, deposits uh, and some fairly good sized deposits. This uh, uh, one at Kennecott here, I think they're Forecasting a six to eight billion dollar uh, draw out of just this one ore body that they're doing, and there's several uh, other locations going western, westerly from Marquette, uh, all the way out to the western end of the UP. There's a couple of mining companies out there, and that's where Matt Hooky uh, represents, and uh, I'm sure he's, uh, you know, trying to represent or help out these. Mining companies, but in the uh, by doing so, uh, he's hurting the local communities and school districts.
3: So, when you, when you thought of the idea of you know, maybe that would be such a great idea from to secede from the lower peninsula, how would you envision that working?
10: Well, I uh, this is this is nothing new. Uh, the last attempt though was done in 1978 by Representative Dominic Jacobetti from the UP. Uh, he managed to introduce a bill, and it only failed, I think uh, the total was 67 to 66, so it only lost by one, uh, one vote. My question is, if Mr. Jacob Eddy was with us today, he's passed away, would be is why he didn't uh, try it again with being the uh, vote that close. There was prior votes that uh, were not uh, as close as that. Uh, matter of fact, quite to the contrary. I mentioned this uh, in frustration. Uh, this has been a longstanding issue with people in the UP that uh, we feel disenfranchised from a land We're actually closer to, you know, Green Bay, Milwaukee, and Chicago than we are to uh, Detroit, for instance. So we've always... Um, Felt this uh, this disenfranchisement, and of course, we're feeling it more and more now with some of these proposals that are coming out. Where we would have stood a pretty good chance of of uh, helping our economy here in Marquette County, uh, and now the state is looking, and Mr. Hookie's, uh looking to uh, step in and and take that uh, uh, that control away from the locals and. Uh, actually the um, control of the tax, how much the tax is, and and so on and so forth. So the locals will, if this goes through, will have lost control of being able to assess these mines and tax them accordingly.
3: How differently do you think the UP would run if it was separate from the Lower Peninsula?
10: Well, it would be kind of interesting. I've been asked that question before, and... uh, if, if it ever happened, uh, wouldn't it be kind of interesting if the people looked at all the mistakes and problems that uh, are going on throughout our, the rest of our state and nation and try to set up a government that um, uh, would thwart off those, uh, those ill-fated uh, uh, attempts? However, that being said, uh, the chance of this ever going through now is nil next to nothing i think i've used the statement that i probably have a better chance of becoming the next president of the united states without even uh, running for office uh, than this secession uh, would go through now that they've found uh, these mineral deposits up here and that there's absolutely no way that the uh, state legislators from downstate uh, would vote in favor of this uh, secession mo- uh, movement. I'm not even sure uh, our two our Republican uh, representative and senator from the UP would even vote for it at this time.
3: So how would you describe the difference between the people and the way of life and and the way that that things are governed in the UP versus versus the lower peninsula?
10: Well, I think uh, just from a casual observance, and that I think the u p is is a little more laid back, obviously, we have uh, uh, enough land up here we 're bigger than some states actually are. however, our population is uh, much lower, so I think up here you have various communities in rural areas. Um, Obviously, the cities of probably Marquette and Escanaba and Iron Mountain and Sault Ste. Marie are probably uh, the largest cities and uh, spread out there, again, quite a bit from uh, one another. So you're, you're kind of getting away from the urban uh, atmosphere and uh, more of a rural Type atmosphere, a lot of tourism up here, a lot of uh, woods and and, uh, hunting, fishing, and so on and so forth. So I think it's a little different um, setting. It certainly isn't uh, like some cement cities, I guess you could refer to downstate.
3: So, from what I'm understanding, the the big issue here is why the UP feels uh, left out from the rest of the state is, is does it really, is it the big issue come down to
10: the tax issue? Well, I think, no, I think there's been other issues uh, through the years. And and quite honestly, every time uh, a major issue uh, rears its head, uh, up here in the UP, um, you know, people that have been around for a while, like myself and that, uh, will always mention we should secede from the rest of the state. And that so it's 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 not a new concept. It is something that uh, is talked about on a regular basis when uh, these folks up here feel disenfranchised from downstate and the lawmakers. This here uh, particular thing, when I mentioned it, it was uh, in uh, relation to this severance tax and. The uh, revenue sharing monies that the state owes us and uh, has not paid us the uh, full amount over thirty years, I think it is and um, uh, so it was done in a in a sense of it was kind of tongue in cheek in a way and yet a shot over the ball and that of these uh, folks down state that are uh, making these laws um, and passing them. One of the big concerns I was brought to my attention recently was is that there's been over 560 bills introduced during this administration, uh, probably more now because this was a couple of months ago. All of those, but 20, and that were uh, given immediate effect, which my understanding is in a violation of the Michigan Constitution. As the Constitution is written, when, uh, as I understand it, when a law is adopted, signed, put into, uh, by the governor, and that it has, um, uh, it has to have three months past the end of the legislative session. So hypothetically, if you introduced a bill in January of this year, and let's say for the sake of argument, the uh, legislators did not adjourn until December 30th of this year. That law really should not uh, take effect the way the Constitution is written until 90 days after that, so it would be sometime in March of the following year. These 544 bills in that that have been introduced have taken immediate effect. So there's little chance for uh, people, to, in some cases, to even know that these things are being pushed through, let alone to be able to respond to them and uh, 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 check them out thoroughly to see what the impact of the uh, these laws are.
3: How many people making the decisions in Lansing would you say spend an extended period of time in the UP?
10: Probably only our... Um, our own legislators. I, uh, Steve Lindbergh is a Democrat up here, Tom Casperson is a Republican senator, and Matt Hookie, uh is a Republican representative. Um, the rest of them, uh, you know, the governor and that, whenever it's an election year or something like that, or maybe there's something, you know, a good press uh, opportunity or something like that, will, you know, make trips up here. Um, but other than that, um, uh, we don't see too much of them. Mm
3: -hmm. So on the phone is Mike Quayle. He is the Marquette County Commissioner, and recently he has um, been in talks with the idea of the Upper Peninsula seceding from the Lower Peninsula, the idea of creating two separate states there. So, Mike Quayle, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
10: You're very welcome. Have a good day.
1: You're listening to
2: Impact Exposure.
3: Now, back to
2: Impact Exposure.
3: You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. The Keweenaw Bay Indian Community has asked the United Nations to help curb sulfide mining in the Upper Great Lakes. On the phone to talk about the controversy surrounding sulfide mining is Jessica Koski. She's part of the Keweenaw Bay Indian Community and wrote the document that was sent to the United Nations. Welcome to the show, Jessica.
2: Thank you. It's great to be
3: here. Tell me, what has been your involvement in trying to to stop sulfide mining in the UP, and how long has this struggle been going on for?
2: Um, I got involved during the summer of 2006 uh, simply as a student who had heard rumors about sulfide mining on the Yellow Dog Plains, and so I wanted to learn more about it through an internship opportunity. And I quickly learned that um, the number one threat was acid mine drainage, and it's just an inherent risk with uh, sulfide mining, especially ore deposits as Eagle that are very highly reactive. Um, so once this, um, the nickel and copper is what they mainly want, but this byproduct of pyrite, uh, which is the sulfur, once it's exposed to the elements of air and water, which is very hard to environmentally manage for and prevent, uh, it creates um, sulfuric acid, the equivalent of battery acid, um, which, once it gets into our rivers and streams, can last for generations and indefinitely um, in the form of acid mine drainage. So with this sulfide mine located right uh, within the Lake Superior watershed and actually directly underneath a tributary of Lake Superior, uh, that's really what... Um, Got me involved, and then also a lot of the cultural impacts that would happen, especially with the direct insult with the um, I propose. Well, now it's actually constructed a mine portal into uh, a sacred place to my people, and also many other indigenous peoples, including the Ho Chunk and Cheyenne peoples, uh, Mickey Ziwas and Eagle Rock. Until- so that was my beginnings.
3: Right, and in, in, can you tell us a little bit about um, Eagle Rock and its significance uh, to the Native people that that live in that area?
2: Yep, um, it was traditionally used uh, by the Anishinaabe people as primarily for a vision, visioning, and fasting place. Um, it's a very high outcrop um, on a mainly flat landscape. Uh, you can see the Huron Mountains in the distance, and uh, so it was used, it's a secluded area. It was private. Um, there's not development around the area. So it was, it was primarily used for that, but it's also, I'm learning more and more from other peoples that it was also recognized as a, a place that's correlated with other ceremonial sites. And um, I'm learning more and more, and this past weekend we also... I had the opportunity to actually visit Eagle Rock, uh, my first time since the company Rio Tinto uh, fenced it off in 2010. Uh, I went up there with spiritual uh, leaders and elders from my community and other communities, including the Ho-Chunk, to do an offering and learn more about its significance and uh, <clears throat> with intentions to go back more and more. And. The ore body itself, um, in fact, actually resembles a a baby. They call it the copper baby. Um, so, in uh, Indigenous peoples' beliefs and the Anishinaabe peoples' beliefs, um, the earth is recognized as our mother, our mother, the earth. And so, this is a direct insult to Mother Earth. Essentially, it's sort of, I guess, my understanding is it's a lot. Um, a very significant sacred place um, with meaning way beyond just the Eagle Mine itself.
3: But I understand so far that that Eagle Rock has not been overtaken by mining uh, thus far, that it's still protected land. Is that correct? Um,
2: it's This is what the mining company keeps stating. They keep stating that they are working with the KBIC to ensure access, Um. But essentially what we had to do is um, traditional access doesn't require getting permission from our tribal president. Traditional access does not require getting permission from a multinational mining company. It doesn't require putting on green and orange vests. It doesn't require wearing safety glasses and being escorted by company officials.
3: Mm.
2: And when you're at the top of the outcrop and you overlook and you can see um The difference and what it looks like today. You're overlooking a clear cut area that's sandy. You see waste rock piles, and you see this um, big silver metal um, portal going right into the sacred doorway in the eastern direction of Eagle Rock. Um, So the whole integrity of the site has been completely disrespected. So it's just it's so such an insult that the company keeps. Sort of saying that you know it's it's okay. We're still allowing access, right? But it's not traditional access and use.
3: I understand that the Huron Mountain Club uh, today filed suit to stop construction of of a new nickel and copper mine owned by Kennecott, also in the UP. Have you been in touch with the Huron Mountain Club, and have you have you heard about that that new lawsuit?
2: Yeah, I have just been reading the news articles in the past couple of days. Um, but mm-hmm. I haven't been in communication with them directly, um, so this is um, yeah brand new news. And there is the possibility that perhaps the Keweenaw Bay Indian Community could serve as an intervener in this federal case. Mm-hmm. And,
3: and I'm curious. So again, you you wrote to the United Nations um, to try to, to to curb the sulfide mining that's going on in the UP. Why why the United Nations?
2: Um, primarily it's a, a diplomatic advocacy um, appeal. It's We're not getting justice at the state level. Um, they completely disregard our worldview, and only places that have built structures are worthy of protection as places of worship. So our religious freedom is totally ignored at the state level. The federal level um, also has injustice against Native peoples, Um, across across the United States um, where Native American sacred places are not being protected. And also with the federal government with the Michigan sulfide mining issues, they have delegated an extreme amount of authority, um, virtually all environmental protection authority to the state of Michigan under the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. And so they're not um, involved in having jurisdiction over these projects. So Um, Right now is an opportune time. The United States recently endorsed the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and the United Nations is currently, they just did a site visit to the United States to investigate the state of Native Americans with regard to the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So this is a, a prime opportunity to inform United Nations, of our situation here in the United States so that they can make informed recommendations um, for how the United States can implement laws that respect our rights and um, protect our culture. Can you tell me a little bit
3: more about the UN's Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People? What does it protect and, and what would you like to be protected under that declaration that may not be there?
2: Okay. Um, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was adopted by the U.N. General Assembly in 2007. Um, at the time, um majority of the countries, nation-states around the world adopted and endorsed the declaration, except there was four that were opposed, and that was um, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States. Now, since then, all four have subsequently um, changed their mind and have supported the declaration, and the declaration outlines, um, let's see, I have it in front of me. About forty-six different principles. Um, it's built. It builds off of um, previous previous human rights um, declarations, mm-hmm. and it recognizes our our right to our traditions, right to our language, our right to participate in decision making in matters that would affect our rights. Um, mm-hmm. They have to consult and cooperate in good faith to obtain our free prior and informed consent. That's a very important one that indigenous peoples in other countries are making headway with more. Um, So essentially on our traditional territories, all these mines that are being permitted by the state where the KBIC doesn't have a seat at the table, nor other tribes that are impacted, including ones in Wisconsin whose treaty right territory includes lands that are currently in the territory of Michigan. aren't barely even notified when um, decisions are being made, and our comments are relegated to public comment periods where our concerns are just ignored. Um, So essentially just having a a seat at the table and having a role in decision-making, especially with these being lands where um, we have treaties with the U.S. federal government where we have rights to subsistence hunting, fishing, gathering, where when you're talking about such large-scale development, which um, we didn't really get into yet, but Rio Tinto and 7 Eagles, they're exploring um, a vast area of the UP as well as other companies that have intentions to open mines, um, could really disrupt the ecosystem, our water, our destroyed plants that are used traditionally. Mm-hmm. So, the federal government has an obligation to uphold those those treaty rights. That's not um we didn't go into enter those treaties with the state of Michigan yet. They're making all the decisions.
3: Can you tell me about the history and prevalence of mining in the UP?
2: Uh, yeah, there's a long history um, but it's been the main
3: source of 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 the economy up there for a, for a long time. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, historically it has been. We presently have two currently operating iron ore mines, um, Empire and Childen. The new wave of mining is um, much different, though, in that it's sulfide mining. Um, We've been fortunate in the past that the ore bodies weren't highly reactive in containing um, acid-generating materials, although we still are dealing with um, superfund sites um, from the previous era of mining. We're dealing with a laying economy due to the inherent boom and bust of the mining industry. Um, We have places like Torch Lake and Deer Lake that you can't eat the fish, um, Goose Lake even from the Empire and Tilden mine operations, and um, serious issues with selenium. Um, So there's already been a lot of impacts on our economy and our environment by the mining industry. In the UP,
3: mm-hmm. well, on the phone is Jessica Kosky. She's part of the Keweenaw Bay Indian Community. Uh, they recently sent a document to the United Nations to help curb sulfide mining in the Upper Great Lakes. And Jessica was um, part of the the team that wrote that document. So, Jessica Koski, thanks so much for calling in, and uh, best of luck with this situation. Yep, thank you. All right, bye bye. Bye.
1: You're listening to
2: Impact Exposure. First
10: floor. Hey, what floor are you going to?
6: <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we, uh, have...
3: Yeah, that one class. Yeah,
6: that's so funny the, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could, uh, would you ever want to, um, <coughs> I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye.
3: What? No. Oh, I
6: just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. that's uh, so
3: gross.
7: I
6: thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No.
7: Don't touch me. What's wrong with you? Oh,
6: sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing.
1: Free? Studies show that three-quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Or at cdc.gov
2: slash cleanhands. Impact 89FM.
3: You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. This week's Michigan Storytelling Segment features Do- John Gagnon, author of Lake Superior Profiles, People on the Great Lake. Welcome to the show.
0: Hi. So, how, for having me.
3: Yeah, no problem. How would you describe this book?
0: This is a book about work. About work. Uh, it's about people and their work, whether it's a, a fisherwoman or a botanist studying arctic wildflowers on Isle Royale, or a tugboat captain in Thunder Bay, or a monk on the Keweenaw Peninsula. It's all about work. What inspired
3: you to write this book?
0: Well, that's inspired is is uh, too deep a word. Mm-hmm. I, it's just uh, an abiding interest in other people.
3: Mm-hmm.
8: And I'm how
0: really d- I- I'm <sighs> really interested in telling other people's stories.
3: How did you find these people?
0: Um, there was no grand scheme. I just went from one chapter to another as I learned about people. Uh, I, I had a tug a, a ferryboat captain, for instance, refer me to the, uh, a, uh, an boat captain that he knew that went out looking for the Edmund Fitzgerald the night that uh, it sank. He was uh, hunkered down in uh, Whitefish Bay waiting out the storm, and the Coast Guard prevailed upon him to go out and look and he did and uh... weathered the night and anyway uh, a, a ferry boat friend of mine had uh... met him and steered me his way and um, i went up to thunder one of the logistical uh, accomplishments was i went up to thunder bay knowing one person and only in passing and i went up there i started with him and a week later i had uh, six or eight stories <laughs> Different people steering me in different directions.
3: Mm-hmm. And uh, how long did it take you to, to write to find all these people and, and write? And what was the process of meeting all these people? How long did that take?
0: I took it. Took me ten years to do this. Book. Oh,
3: wow. Well, let's. I, I, I'm curious to hear an expert an, an excerpt uh, from this book. Would you be, be be excuse me willing to read something?
0: Sure, I'll read a short passage. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Lake Superior is not as old as the hills. The hills around the lake date back one billion years, while Lake Superior dates back just 9,500 years to the last thrust of a two-million-year-old ice age when glaciers advanced and retreated across much of North America. When the ice moved south from Canada for the last time, it gouged out a basin, which... When the glaciers melted, left behind a lake that stretched from Canada to the lower Midwest, from the Dakotas to New York. Today's promontories were little islands. This behemoth body of water drained and left behind today's Great Lakes. Lake Superior, now the biggest, is actually today at its very smallest. French explorers call Lake Superior and the other Great Lakes Douce, or sweet seas. These five lakes contain one-fifth of the world's fresh water. Lake Superior, 350 miles long and up to 160 miles wide, covers nearly 32,000 square miles. All of the other great lakes topped off with three more Lake Erie's could fit into Superior. 200 rivers and streams dump into the lake, which has a small watershed for so large a body of water. The biggest inlet is the Nipigon River, at the lake's northernmost point. The only outlet is the St. Mary's River at the lake's easternmost point. On average, a drop of water entering the lake takes 200 years to find its way out. The salient geographical features of the lake are Isle Royale in the north, the Keweenaw Peninsula in the south, the Apostle Islands in the west, and Whitefish Point in the east. Because of Lake Superior, the westernmost of the Great Lakes the United States is the only country in the world with a major seaport, Duluth, nearly 3, 2,300 miles inland. Indians call Lake Superior Kitchigumi, a name of many spellings. Longfellow called it Gichigumi and shining big sea water. It is believed the Anishinaabe arrived on the north shore of the lake between 1,200 and 1,500. Europeans came to the area in the early 1600s. Early French explorers called these waters Lac Superior, uppermost lake. These pioneers were enticed by furs, loads of iron and copper, expansive forests, and a fishery deemed inexhaustible. One of these fish, the lake trout, was decimated by overfishing and sea lamprey, an invasive life-sucking predator that proved to be the spawn of Satan. A more heavenly aspect is the lake's bracing, chill air. A day on the lake makes one loggy. When I was a lad, there used to be a sign in the Keweenaw Peninsula that read, you are now breathing the purest, most vitalizing air on earth. It said the college fellows used to nail skunks to the sign. I don't know if that's true, but it's a good yarn. The lake makes for many, as Longfellow wrote in Song of Hiawatha, you shall hear a tale of wonder.
3: And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was John Gagnon, author of Lake Superior Profiles, People on the Great Lakes. John, thanks so much for joining us tonight and sharing your story um, of your book.
0: Thanks for having me. All right. Bye.
1: Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to
7: Impact Exposure.
0: 89FM.